BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. Hit me with the Oompa Loompa song, Jake. Augustus Gloop, Augustus Gloop. Whoa. He's a greedy nincompoop. <laughs> he's a big fat piece of shit. He deserves to die because he's fat. I'm 800 of the same weird guy. That fat kid deserved to die. Why is Johnny Depp acting like that? Oh, Who my, cares how dare that you? dead kid was fat. How dare you? That's right. I went 2005. I, exactly. The, please, the 1971. Uh, song, please. Holden, 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 you really, you're opening a can of worms with your 1970s supremacy. An argument could be made that the 2005 Warner Brothers Johnny Depp Tim Burton version of the character Willy Wonka might be the more beloved movie. I, I, don't, I, don't, I say my this. Wonka! <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think... I, I would be more with you if if I did not loathe Johnny Depp's performance in that movie, mm. and that is definitely a personal opinion that is probably right, but uh, I also feel like I something about it just got me, just rubbed me the wrong fucking way, and yeah, it's impossible to not compare it to uh, Gene Wilder, the oh, iconic. Gene Wilder was the, definitely, without a doubt, the m- much more iconic Wonka, but... If you put Depp's bizarre choices aside as a film, as a like actual A to B characters have arcs, things happen because of reasons movie, the argument could be made. This might be a prequel thing. We're like we rejected because it's not what we grew up with. But that's not the time to have this discussion. I'm the just saying suck. it's all Wonka. <laughs> it's all Wonka. <laughs> The prequels are garbage. Bruiser Jake, did we introduce ourselves? Oompa Loompa, Jake a dee doo. I have a fun episode for you. We will talk about Charlie and his and Willy Wonka's. Jo- All right, it's went off the rails. What do you get when Raoul Dahl's drunk? <laughs> a lot of words that you wish he hadn't thunk. He banged a he lot said- of really hot ladies. That's a thing I learned about him very lately. He. <laughs> he 
apparently he had a quite the pole on him. He was mean to wives and Jews. <laughs> Good, let's get that out of the way too. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, don't look up what Oompa Loompas looked like in the 60s. Do not, well, we'll talk about that when we get to that part of the history of the book because the NAACP went after the movie and so Ronald Dahl had to change them to hippies. This, uh, okay, all right, all right, all right. So the topic is obviously the entire Wonkaverse as it is. And um, this is really, it's something you kind of take for granted. The original movie, especially for those of us of our generational cohort, the movie was on TV all the time. Every household in America had a VHS copy that was like just rubbed into like fuzz by just being run over over and over again by VHS tape heads. And the actual story the actual reasons and like the the people that made this movie possible, the legacy of this of the movie and the book, obviously it all started with the book. And then just like the just the ways that this this bizarre silly candy man just exists in our popular imagination just is completely bonkers in a way that you just bonkers is a different kind of candy. You know what I mean? Um, I even looked at like, like, God, I, we, I could spend a whole episode just talking about all the various candy companies that have changed the Wonka brand name and have like failed to make it stick. It's so fucking fascinating. And I think, I think it all kind of boils down to the fact that for me personally, that original 1971 film with Gene Wilder, uh, is, a singularity. It is such a weird movie. Mm-hmm. It has these like musical numbers that are yeah, barely it's like a, a musical, music- but it's not. It's, it's a not comedy, a musical, but it's not. Uh, it's 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 like it has this like Disney like energy, but it's like cheaper. It's visibly cheaper. The children are like you know. There's it's this moralizing tale about how the children watching the movie are shitty and deserve to die. <laughs> yeah, well, that, and that's the very the raw doll. Yeah. Influence, uh, you know, which, which I love, and we'll get into raw doll, but like that's what gives such a zing to the movie is like you think, oh, it's going to be this chocolate factory, and in 2023, a movie about a man and his chocolate factory and a boy getting a golden ticket to see it would just be filled with delights and probably very little like darkness whereas this movie is like why is this so fucking dark it's a movie about a chocolate hey kids listen to this man scream terrifying poetry and watch a chicken get its head cut off i mean that whole part too but that was also back in the glory days when every kids movie had to have some horrific frightening moment in it Mm -hmm. that like challenged the psyche i i I love that shit so wait so, so to bring it all home this movie and this property is an oddity. It is existing outside of so many traditional IP holders, so many focus groups, so many just like corporate commodification processes. And yet in these divine moments where like the camera starts panning over the way too watery chocolate river and the first few chords kick in and Gene Wilder starts to sing. It is a thing of transcendent beauty. Absolutely. It is so fucking good and powerful in a way that so much children's media is just not even allowed to approach these days. And it's those transcendent moments 
that have just stayed with us and have given enough goodwill that they're fucking, they're taking another run at it and there's going to be a Timothy Chalamet movie coming out. We're like hours by the time this episode's dropped. Speaking of prequels, though, it's not a retelling, though. It is a prequel film. It, I, I keep saying this, and I don't think this is actually true, but I, I keep making this statement. I think I'm the only person who cares about the Wonka prequel movie. I care deeply. I am so excited for this movie. A, because i am become this huge musical fan uh, over the past few years, and like all I want in in the movie theater right now are big, giant, you know, musicals that uh, harken back to like classic Hollywood. That really revs my engine. Not that they've been advertising it as a musical. Like the trailer gave you barely a hint that it's a. Musical. This is okay. This is its own conversation. Lately, um, uh, for some reason, the people that make trailers uh, when it concerns m- musicals are like afraid. To sh- sh- to show that it's a musical because Mean Girls the musical also was which is even weirder because it's based on a movie that is not a musical mm-hmm. so to not show any musical stuff in the musical version adaptations trailer it just seems batshit to me but yeah I, I'm I'm most excited probably about the fact that it's just a big ass musical on top of that though I you know. Yes, I, it's hard for me to see how Timothy Chalamet is gonna like wow me as a Wonka. I still like I've I've never been let down by a Chalamet performance. Almost unfortunately, like I almost wish I could be at a certain point. You're like Jesus, dude. Root doomers uh, rise you know, up. You're obvious. too young to be this successful and talented. <laughs> and uh, and then the director. Paul King, dude. Yeah. Paddington is amazing. Like, I watched the Paddington, Paddington movies. Paddington 2 is even amazinger. Oh, the, my God. Paddington 2 is incredible. I watched the Paddington movies when I was in that weird phase of, of Winnie-dom mm-hmm. when she was, like, a little baby in the first few months, and you're just, like, up all hours of the night. I probably watched those movies at, like, 3 in the morning. Like, I started them. You know what I mean? And just had heard so many great things and was not let down. It was a wonderful, wonderful... And, I mean, talk about being able to, like, adapt famous children's literature characters. Like this guy is so good at what he does and brings such a cool, unique vibe to the a movie, much like Tim Burton, but unfortunately I don't I didn't love that that uh particular film. But uh yeah, I, I mean all the ingredients are there and it's getting really good uh apparently like reviews and reactions. So but like n- I, I mean I, I I'll probably have to go see it alone. I don't know if I can find anybody who wants to go with me out of here? <laughs> like that's like that's where it's at, and uh, I'm so excited uh, for this movie, which is kind of what prompted the episode today. But also, you know, hey, let's get into the gush. I mean, I have been, you know, I, I was a huge Ronald Dahl fan as a kid. He was like probably my favorite author. Um, what was uh, what age. was your favorite? Were you a Matilda guy? Were you a Danny Champion of the World guy? Like, I definitely like James and the Giant Peach. I was a Twits guy. Oh, I loved the Twits. I thought that was awesome. Um, I loved, I mean, The Witches, dude. And talk about a movie that had fucking crazy, scary shit in it. I loved that. I think so many people gravitated, so many children gravitated to his books because he didn't shy away from dark things, scary things. It was handled, I think, in a way that wasn't like too much for kids, arguably. But also, like... It seemed like he was able to tap into the view of the world that we had as kids in a lot of ways. Like the E teacher was so evil and the evil kids were so kid so mm-hmm. so shitty. Like we want like as children we wanted that that to be represented that like because the world isn't just a fluffy, lovely, wonderful place. Like 
other kids suck and teachers some certain teachers certain authority figures parents even fucking suck like and you know that stuff needs to be represented uh definitely loved James and the Giant Peach as well but I I was uh, honestly huge huge into Charlie and the Chocolate Factory I remember that reading that and then reading Charlie and the Glass Elevator which was a bit of a head scratcher yeah that one I I forgot I had read it till somebody mentioned it's so weird uh, on our Sunday study group where we actually meet with uh, patrons go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew find out how you can join uh, mentioned the aliens from the Great Glass Elevator so who weird. turn into le- like letters and I was like fuck I did read it what the fuck was that book yeah it, it, that that is uh, oh oh and BFG how could I forget I mean BFG was so fucking good there's only one BFG in my book Holden and I use it to slay demons Superman oh okay uses yeah yeah no I get it yeah. I get it you know Doom rules let's do it let's do Doom let's, let's talk about Doom right now <laughs> dude I fucking played Doom on now that the recasting engine that allowed for a, a, a facsimile of 3D environments was technically a 2D based uh, system. <laughs> Sorry, gateway computer. By the way, I was not playing Doom on in my Apple II. I was playing Montezuma's Revenge, <laughs> which is such a weird game. And and actually, no, exists we're losing on the thread. Friends. Hold it, we're losing the thread. All uh, right, but either way, Br- Britain. Uh, I love uh, how dark the books could be. I love the worlds that he created. It felt like such a Unique and specific space that the illustrations in his works. Oh, were by also, Sir Quentin Blake, the yes. squiggly, scratchy art style. Yes, yes super endearing. I loved that art style. Was so awesome. And then the movie. And I do think the movie is an interesting one to go back to as an adult because you forget like so many sections of it because mm-hmm. you know the I've got a golden ticket. Pure imagination, the boy getting sucked up in the thing, the the girl turning into the blueberry. Like all of these things are, there's all these iconic moments where there's tons of moments like you kind of forget and you're like, whoa. They, they like like they take a really long time to get to the actual chocolate factory. Yeah. Like, like just that in itself. They take and not only that, the opening, like, um, God, it's we're telling this out of order because like it feels it feels it's so good to finally talk about this with someone who also did all the research. Yeah. Is that like, you know, the uh, the the director really just was a documentarian for like his most of his career, Mel Stewart. And so the first half of the 1971 film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, is kind of like this uh, this this pastiche of documentary subjects. There's like uh, all the children winning the ticket and their parents. And then there's like. The woman whose husband is kidnapped and everything is being told by news reporters and like slice of life, like little scenes. And then like finally, when they get to the chocolate factory, like when they literally enter, it finally becomes a traditional narrative film. Yeah. To the point where watching it as a kid, I would like literally, literally start slamming my head against blunt corners of furniture just, I know that was, that's not how you don't, okay. I was slamming my head against various surfaces whenever it was time for just like, cheer up, Charlie, give us my, which is like a character torch song for the mom that has no payoff, like 
it just as a structural musical, it's a terrible song. Right. There is just like so many jokes that went over my head because they're like the computer that's like beep boop. That's cheating. Is like a Professor Frank, like little like ha cha 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 moment. I don't get all of the cultural and societal commentary of like the rich factory owner being like, whoever wins gets an extra pound in the pay slip, like all that stuff. The uh, South American gambler who like fakes it, all that shit just like went over my head. So I was just so bored by it. But then once they get to the fucking chocolate factory where there's uh, the the soda soap car and the 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 invention lab where he's throwing pants in a vat of syrup, the gobstopper, all the violet, you're turning violet. It's just such compelling imagery. And it's actually being told as a movie that it's it don't like. It's almost two separate movies. Yeah, one totally. It, the first part is this like uh, mockumentary, weird, weird like Mary Poppinsy British musical kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that's like yeah. In the first, but they're the, not the in part. England. Like Charlie is an American kid, but like the townspeople are British, but the they're. Filming around Munich, Germany, so everything looks like it's out of a Bavarian Oktoberfest. Uh, like everything is so surreal. It's 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 yeah. It's like a parallel world. All I'm saying, all I'm saying is, <laughs> the Burton movie for all of its <laughs> uh, shortcomings actually kind of just works better as an A to B like screenwriting fundamentals movie. Sure, and and it's more true to the book, uh, even though it does also take some liberties with some stuff we'll get into. I just, um, honestly, I think actually if Johnny Depp did up a little bit more and didn't make the weird choice he made, and we'll get into that in a little bit, I, I don't think I would have bounced off of it so hard, And but it is kind of difficult. I mean, d- definitely when I was like, oh, they're adapting that movie, that movie is so weird and specific and iconic, and Gene Wilder's performance is so important I would even say like at least to me growing up he was such like just just I was like this there was one of the first remakes where I was like this feels wholly unnecessary Mm -hmm. to me you know and I think we'll get it there's actually reasons why they did it though and it was a little more connected to Roald Dahl's distaste for the 1971 film and his uh, estates uh, distaste for not getting more money from having that as well and so that definitely, you know, it came into play. But I mean, my gush on this movie is I didn't actually come around to watching it until this past week. It, I was a huge Tim Burton fan growing up too. Talk about movies that were dark and interesting, but also like childlike. You know, I, a big fan. But uh, this was the first Tim Burton movie. I was like, I think I'm good. I, I, I can't. I don't think I can sit. I, I love the original too much to to sit through this. I, I just can't handle. Oh. Especially once I started hearing it wasn't very good. Yeah. You know, because I think the initial reaction was more mixed than. What was interesting was I went online and saw that there was more love for it than it, I uh, thought. I thought it was like hugely panned and just a big blockbustery cash grabby thing. No, no, it is it is a, a, a semi-iconic, maybe even beloved by the generation of kids that grew up watching it in the 2000s. Yeah. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. And so, you know, that... Yeah, that kind of started, that was like the weird turning point with me and Tim Burton movies where like I started missing them. You know, I definitely missed Alice in Wonderland, you know, and I, because I was just like, what are we doing here? This doesn't even feel like you're excited about like making stories anymore. I don't know. It just didn't seem, you know, it just, it all seemed very cynical to me after a point. But uh, regardless, I, I'm so glad I watched the movie this week because I have so many thoughts. I've really been ruminating a lot on, on why, you know, I didn't enjoy the movie that much, and what 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 makes the original so great. But the whole thing is is weird. Starting with Ronald Dahl, I mean, he's even now such an odd figure because he's a complicated figure. Because you know, <laughs> I still complicated value. is just a word for like, man. It feels like everybody who's ever interacted with this man has nothing nice to say. But fuck it, he could write a good book. Exactly, but it's as complicated as there's other as my other thing. You know. People, I was a huge fan of growing up and then find out that they're a piece of shit or they have awful viewpoints towards, uh, let's say, Jewish people in this example. And, you know, and and this sucks and we have to now kind of negotiate with that. And we're not going to be negotiating with that a ton in this episode. Uh, we're we're going to we're going to say that now we got it out there. We know that that's a part of it. But yeah, I mean. It, you know, but that that's kind of it's it's almost as conflicting as his own work because it's like as much as there's this joy and exuberance, there's this darkness there and, and it's inherent in everything. And I think it's why his shit is so popular, you know, and why Tim Burton's shit is so popular yeah. and why that 1970 movie, 1971 movie is so popular because, you know, as much as people talk about World of Pure Imagination, they talk about that fucking trippy, you know, bad trip psycho tunnel scene that happens, mm-hmm. you know, that just totally like spins you out if you watch it, especially as a kid. And you jump behind the couch and hide from it even, you know, because it was so, it was like, can you make it through this? So, And yeah, uh, I, buckle I, up because this is going to be a double uh, length episode because we will go in depth on the 2017 direct-to-video Tom and Jerry colon <laughs> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate yes. Factory animated film. Of course. That definitely, uh, you know, will need an extra hour just to unpack whatever the fuck they were thinking with that one. Well, let's get into it then, Jake. Let's Starting with Ronald Dahl, born in 1916, and at just three years old, his father passes away. So there you go. He's already, it's already a conflicting upbringing because he, he was he was well off from the get-go. His, his parents were Norwegian, but his father was a successful shipbroker that became quite wealthy. Uh, and uh, it was like a self-made man type of thing. He was big on, uh, I think it was like shipping and that sort of thing. Uh, they immigrate to the UK in the 1880s to, you know, get that money. And early on in his life, tragedy struck as his sister then passes away from appendicitis at the age of seven. While he's just three years old, weeks after that, his father dies from pneumonia. I mean, this is like a really brutal, and he's it's crazy because he ends up going through a similar thing with his own uh, adult family, uh, with his wife and children later on. Uh, it's just a, he he kind of 
kind of, he kind of, but it seems like he almost thrives through tragedy. Uh, So due to his passing, Dahl inherits a decent fortune early on. Uh, And so when Dahl is six, he got to meet his idol, by the way, a little side note, Beatrix Potter, author of The Tale of Peter Rabbit. So he had an interest in writing, but as you might guess from just reading his books, like wasn't necessarily like the best student, you know, or Mm -hmm. didn't really like love school at all. Uh, At the age of eight, uh, he has a memory of being caned by the headmaster of his school after he and his buddies snuck a dead mouse into a jar of gobstoppers at a nearby jawbreakers. candy store. Those are jawbreakers. Jawbreakers? Oh, okay. Yeah. Why did it say go? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's just how, what they call them over in uh, Backwards Land. At a nearby candy store that was uh, run by an evil old lady named Mrs. Pratchett. And I love that uh, immediately we have these characters in his life, these of course, an evil old lady runs the fun candy store, right? Like, just immediately. He was not known for his writing at school. He loathed the place, you know, mostly because of the characters he'd end up writing about. Older kids that would bully him. There was definitely a hierarchy. The older kids essentially made the younger kids their slaves uh, until they were able to do the same to the classmate below them eventually. And, uh, you know, also very... Oh, yeah, no, wait. Did he go to a fucking board? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he went to a fucking boarding. He went to a 1920s British boarding Brutal. school. Like, it's just a fucking, a, a actual misery factory. Yeah, just- An actual... Like, this is where the fucking uh, uh, just enforcers of empire are, like, honed into cruel monsters. Yeah, the Whomping Willow was just this big fucking yeah. weird guy that just beat the fuck out of you for, like, <laughs> keeping a door open, you know? It was not, yeah. like, uh, it was not a Harry Potter indeed. The local bishop ripped a kid in half and then laughed in the entrails. <laughs> yeah, so we all yeah. just had to watch and give him money. And they had to like, eat his guts at lunch the next day or the same would happen to them, you know? Was this was a, before the 6 a.m. buggering that would wake us up at every, like, it's not, like, I can't even imagine. Yeah, like, buggering was an entire period of the day, like, it was at, right after lunch. Not, yeah, just. Like, I make, I'm laughing because if I actually think about how many children suffered in this, like, Lord of the Flies-ass situation for generations, I would start to weep. Awful. And during that time, the chocolate company Cadbury would send sample boxes of new chocolates for the kids to taste. Uh, which got Dahl fantasizing about inventing a chocolate bar of his own that got the praise of Mr. Cadbury. (laughs) Uh, So in other words, using a lot of fantasy and uh, imagination in order to, uh, you know, forget about the merciless and brutal uh, stompings he received (laughs) by the upperclassmen and uh, all that good stuff. So after school, he ends up joining the Royal Air Force to fight in World War II. Uh, That is until a crash and subsequent head injuries moved him from flying to intelligence work. And during that time, uh, this is kind of when the changeover happens, when he gets into writing as an adult. He meets a novelist named C.S. Forrester, who asks him to write an account of his plane crash. This ends up in the Saturday Evening Post, which leads to more publishing work about this time at war uh, that he experienced. And a lot of authors came out of World War II. We've covered them, uh, some of them. Vonnegut, Tolkien, uh, all of them. And also... um, and the Twilight Zone guy, Rod Sterling. <laughs> Due to the magic of editing, it sounds like I knew the man's name. Uh, so, so anyways, uh, so then uh, he gets into writing novels, at first unsuccessfully with a post-apocalyptic tale published in 1948 titled Sometime Never. 
And through his 30s, he gets into a groove. Kind of reminds me of our literally the last episode we recorded where he's writing these like, okay, selling suspense yarns Mm. at first, which is very much, this podcast turned into a children's book podcast, by the way, because the same thing with the author of the Percy Jackson series. At first, he was writing these like pulpy, you know, uh, like grocery store rack kind of, uh, yarns, and then and then later ends up writing kids stuff, and that's where he hits it big. So, at thirty seven, uh, and, and he by the way during this time he is fucking um uh Earth, he's <laughs> fucking the country, the the world. He's somehow this guy is a real authority. I think he's very tall, right? I think that's part of his deal. He's one of the. I think he's one of those tall, lanky a, guys. Uh, you know his I mean. children described him as a big, scary man. So yeah, yeah, I guess he had he had some some hops. Big scary guy. That's kind of what I love about him too. I think he like doesn't like kids mm-hmm. and became this prolific kids author. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we 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 read that in your work. We love that. We also hate kids. So yeah, he's just fucking them raw and rotten. I mean, woman after woman, these these broads just keep. It's like a turnstile they're going through just over and over again. Um, but eventually he settles down at 37. He meets and marries American actress Patricia Neal. And together they have five children. Uh, and he ends up turning to kids stories uh, just because it's kind of the same old, same old. I feel like we, again, this happened with uh, Percy Jackson, the author of that. Uh, this the, I'm already starting to have to do some, some kind of stuff like this myself as a dad of a two-year-old. He's making up his own uh, stories for his first two children at bedtime. And these stories end up kind of developing out into bigger works, one of which being a small boy who lived near a huge chocolate factory. These years were marred with tragedy. So yet again, he gets struck with really sad stuff. Seven, the age of seven is a bad luck age for him. Their seven-year-old daughter passes away due to measles. Uh, And also his wife suffers a stroke at 39. And so they have to go through a whole awful, you know, rehabilitation period with her where she's like completely, you know, kind of out of sorts for for quite a long time. I do think she ends up turning it back around. So it's it's one of his like, uh, you know, complicated man things is that uh, he basically uh, went against uh, the advice of doctors that claimed that like to rehab from what was apparently three simultaneous cerebral aneurysms while pregnant was that uh, he insisted that she needed way more therapy and rehab sessions than the doctors had prescribed and worked with her constantly to try and bring her back. And that was a show of love. The uh, nonsense language that was uh, described in the BFG, where the BFG says like, you know, these were, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but like, you know, the words are in my head, but they come out all mumbly grumbly or whatever. Uh, like he later admitted was like kind of inspired by the way his wife spoke after her stroke. And so it is like, you know, she also writes in her autobiography, of course, that like, you know, he was a very difficult man to live with as well. Like, you know, there was good with the bad. So it's, it's all kind of just mashed up into his personal life. Yeah. He's always like putting that stuff in, uh, and it's all kind of, it's all, it's all awful. For him, uh, but he's while he's this is going on, 
he's writing uh, these books, the first of which being James and the Giant Peach. Uh, and that one did not take off. That was not his big hit. His big hit really was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. James the Giant Peach came out in 1961. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory came out in 1964. Dahl said, when I first thought about writing the book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I never originally meant to have children in it at all. Let's get into the writing of the book now. Early on, also, by the way, Charlie was, uh, he, he had Charlie as a little black boy. Uh, Dahl's agent ended up putting a stop to that um, due to, you know, concerns and, and things. Uh, so that would have been an interesting take. He uh, decided on a book about a chocolate factory because he'd always had a love for chocolate. It was either that or a toy factory as, quote, those are surely, this is from Ronald Dahl himself, those are surely the two things that play the biggest part in a child's life. So I wrote the book and got it completely wrong. I remember giving it in about uh, the second draft uh, to my young nephew, then about 16. He told me he didn't think it was much good. That shook me. Then I looked at it and realized he was right. It wasn't very good, but I knew there was something there, so I worked and worked away at it, and finally I gave it to publishers. The original story was described by Dahl as, quote, about a little boy who was going around a chocolate factory and he accidentally fell into a big tub of melted chocolate and got sucked into the machine that made chocolate figures and couldn't get out. He is then turned into a, uh, he, he's like a can, he's like a chocolate boy that gets sent to a candy store mm-hmm. and he's almost eaten by a little girl when she realizes he's not a chocolate after all. The end. Yeah. <laughs> not, not like the funnest Kind of just a scary, it's like a bad dream, essentially, this uh, this initial version of this story. And he was like, we need to add more children and do more yeah. fucked up things to them. <laughs> exactly. There's not enough fucked up shit in this story. We need like several rooms of upsetting things. Also, I'm not communicating how fucking blind furious I am at the sound of gum smacking. Yeah. <laughs> and beards for some reason. Man, does he hate beards. <laughs> Uh, he really, really would not like hanging out with us, Jake. He would, he would not be a fan. <laughs> well, for many reasons besides oh, the beards. Oh my god! Yeah, but absolutely. yes, <laughs> definitely, definitely would hate how many video games and uh, TV shows we watch. I think he'd have an issue with that as well. Plus, I'd be constantly trying to just like eat his furniture and like going, "Oh, chocolate!" Uh, oh yeah, like, I, like yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'd just be like shooting fake guns off at him and stuff. <laughs> you know me. The second draft was a boy named Charlie visiting the chocolate factory with nine other children, and then accidentally he gets turned into a chocolate figure uh, that is delivered to Mr. Wonka's house. There, a burglary takes place that Charlie thwarts, (laughs) and so is rewarded with his own sweet shop. Okay. That also obviously gets uh, heavily, heavily altered. And so drafts following that one show Dahl really coming into his own with the story, having much more fun with it. This is actually a note from his agent, Sheila St. Lawrence, at Mm. this time, who was kind of urging him to like make it more whimsical, more fun. She said, I like to see more humor, more light, Dahl-esque touches throughout. I hope some of my remarks will produce counter-remarks in you that will stir you to flights of fancy to make the book take off and really fly, as it undoubtedly will. And one of her suggestions was actually to expand on the uniformed assistants, making them, quote, something more surprising than they are. Mm. Of course, referring to what would become the Oompa Loompas. But unfortunately, early versions of the book, this more fun thing that they came up with, the more surprising thing, had a bit of a racist edge to it. Uh, the Oompa Loompas were described as African pygmies, and the illustrations in the, even the first version of the book uh, totally reflect this. So it's not even just like in the drafts. It's no. completely... No, Willy Wonka the, uh, is described as going to the deepest, darkest parts of Africa where no white man has ever ventured and finding a tribe 
of chocolate skin tiny people and smuggling them in wooden crates uh, to work in his factory. Obviously not to that extent, but they kind of do a little bit of that in, surprisingly, in the Burton movie. Well, so it's an interesting, I mean, this is just the way of the world and the way, you know, this is, you know, this will just keep happening as long as there is culture is uh, when he does end up revising it, he ends up creating this like, uh, seemingly like Pacific Islander lost like tribe of uh, people that are like little fanciful wild men, like still wearing uh, slung deerskins uh, as their outfits. And yeah, no, now they're from a different uninhabited part of the world. But still like the idea that the white man finds this group of savages and through labor uh, raises them up and saves them from their savage wild surroundings is was just that's just what people thought how the world works and not right. like well the British Empire needs more spices and uh, raw cotton so we're just gonna like exploit these people because we have guns and uh, they don't have they're not immune to smallpox like it's just you know obviously I'm, we're not going on on that whole route right now but. Yes, the solution is now even just as ludicrous to the point where in modern republishings of the books, uh, they don't really describe the Oompa Loompas. They're just like, and then there was an Oompa Loompa and they trust that like through pop culture, you just will imagine (laughs) a little orange man. Right. And just move on. Yeah. uh, Apparently this actually this change happened around the making of the movie when the NAACP found out a movie adaptation was being made. They were the ones that spoke out against the initial interpretation of the Oompa Loompas in the book. Dahl then goes and changes the description uh, to make them resemble more like hippies than anything else. I feel like they're kind of taking the piss out of hippies a little bit with the uh, with the take um, there, which, you know, hey, everybody thinks hippies are stupid, so we can fucking we can shit on them all day. That's fun. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, that 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 actually that's kind of crazy. I mean, Charlie Chocolate Factory comes out in 65. I mean, it's several years past of this book becoming very, very popular before this change happens. It's kind of wild. So with so many kids at first, some of which were eventually cut from the book, there were also some lost chapters as well. One of it, which is the spotty powder room, which was a powder that tasted like sugar and gave the uh, eater bright pox-like spots all over them. But just for a few hours, they could call out sick from school uh, and then they would go away. There's a stuffy headmaster and his daughter uh, in the book uh, initially. uh, uh, This is, again, before it actually hit the shelves. They end up going into a room to sabotage the machine, and you just hear screams from the the room, and essentially it's just like they get fucking... They get fucking Mm. murked. Uh, Another involves a vanilla fudge room, but was cut because it was deemed too immoral for British children. Two kids end up riding on wagons carrying the fudge to the pounding and cutting room, which uh, I guess chops the kids up. Uh, and so, so they were like, usually we have these, these like fences that keep the kids from getting through, but it didn't work this time. And so they just get sliced. Another similarly cut room is the warming candy room. Uh, so these kids ingest, there's these warming candles you can ingest. and you eat one, it just like warms you up a little bit in the cold. But they eat a bunch of them and they like burn up, essentially. <laughs> and uh, so that one was cut as well. 
uh, so that's where we get the like narrowed down to the kids that we get. But it is it is really interesting. They all had names and things like that too. One kid's name was Herpes, by the way. One of the cut kids. Uh, that that is just it's wild. It's pretty. It's it's naughty. I mean, Veruca is a kind of wart. So like you know, it's it's it's. I don't doubt it. Totally. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred and seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. But the book does come out, and it is a success, and children around the world are enthralled by this fanciful tale of a good boy who survives an onslaught of horrors and uh, gets everything he's ever wanted. And one little child in particular is the 10-year-old daughter of a film director by the name of Mel Stewart. And it is uh, Mel Stewart who is, uh, is beseeched by his daughter to turn this book that she loves oh so much into a movie with the help of their uncle Dave, who was producer David L. Wolper, no relation. And this is an extremely unlikely duo that sets into motion the 1971 movie because Mel Stewart was basically a documentary filmmaker and he had success with one fiction film that was kind of like a swing and spy romance film called If It's Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium, (laughs) which I have no idea about. But David L. Wolper, the producer, was a real mover and shaker. And so he takes Mel's like just like, hey, what if we made a movie out of uh, Willy Wonka and makes the connection that he was in the midst of talking with the Quaker Oats Company, Quaker Oats being, of course, the oatmeal company that was trying to get into the candy business. And he basically put the strings together and was like, all right, Quaker, here's what you're going to do. You're going to green light my friend Mel's movie. You're going to buy the rights to the Raw Doll book. And your candy bar is going to be the Willy Wonka candy bar. And you're going to make everything under the Willy Wonka logo. It's I just invented this crazy new thing. It's called Brand Synergy. And we're all going to make a ton of fucking money. Here we go. And I know immediately you're thinking, what the fuck? What do you mean the oatmeal company greenlit this movie? <laughs> the fact is, in the 1970s, the studio system was pretty fucked <laughs> Uh, Coca-Cola was making movies at this point. Shell Oil was making movies. There was uh, just so much like the Western was dead. The big movie musical is dead. Like so many things were just not working out for these dinosaur companies and they were struggling to adapt. Uh, You know, we were still a decade away from Spielberg coming in with like new Hollywood and all this shit. 
to like kind of rewrite the, the trajectory of these corporate behemoths. So it really was kind of the Wild West out there. And what really they thought would set them apart was that they were going to do the Disney thing. They were going to Disneyfy this movie because Disney was pretty much the only name in family-based entertainment. So, like, if Disney wasn't making a movie about a chocolate factory, they'll be the ones to do it. They'll have the entire kids' and parents' markets. You know, the kids will watch the movie. They'll buy the candy bars. Everything will pay for itself. Bada-bing, bada-boom. They got uh, Raul Dahl involved. They got him to write the screenplay. He's listed as the sole screenwriter. And, no, that was um, absolutely not the case. He actually, uh, they really, it was David Seltzer uh, who would do so much of the work in the yeah. screenplay. Dahl, uh, I read it a couple different ways that he only turned in like an outline pointing to various sections of the book. I, I think I heard one thing that he like submitted a script, but it was literally just the text of the book, but formatted like a script. That, which was, I, that I believe. Uh, I definitely believe that. Yeah, that he would just kind of one to one it. So yeah, it was it was uh, it was incomplete uh, to say the least, and so. But they were struggling with that script so much, uh, and uh, you know, they were, and Rald was not uh, happy with a lot of the changes. Um, you know, I mean, the entire thing with Slugworth and the everlasting gobstopper yep, that was all added. The the songs outside of the Oompa Loompa songs. The songs were... Wolper really wanted the songs in Yeah. And by the way, and I love that it's this guy because of how creepy the movie can be at parts. He would go on to... His other big screenplay is the one for The Omen, the creepy mm. kid movie, a horror movie, you know? So that's... Amazing. Yeah. That's, that, that tracks. Uh, many... Uh, so for casting, many were considered for the role of Willy Wonka. Fred Astaire was up for it. He was way too old, though. Peter Sellers begged to be it. Uh, he would have been incredible. Peter Sellers might have been the only other person I could see nailing this role. Yeah, well, well, and all six members of Monty Python also really, really, uh, apparently they all wanted a, a crack at the role. Dahl really, really wanted Spike Milligan, and uh, who is a legendary uh, British comic, Irish comic actor, um, kind of like the Mr. Bean of his era, I guess. Uh-huh. Just a lot of like fun panto improv silliness. Oh, God. And all the kids. The casting for the kids was like they were going all over the world. Mm. I think Augustus Gloop uh, got in the movie because they just put up ads in like Germany or something. And his mom was like, you're a little chubby boy. You should get we should make some money off of you. Like, well, yeah. And and going back to Wonka, I mean, it was really Gene Wilder really just walked into the room and completely wowed them. It, it, he he. It was one of those things where I don't think they were necessarily like seriously looking at him before he got in there, but he just completely nailed it. And the Mel Stewart ends up running out into the hallway to offer him the role uh, as as soon as he's done. He said his inflection was perfect. He had the sardonic demonic edge that we were looking for. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, they just completely, completely killed it. I, I, li- I mean, the kids are great too. Uh, the kids, the the casting on the kids, I think, is actually really solid for this movie. I think they're, I, I like them more, I think, than the the Burton film. I'd say. I think Charlie especially has a lot more. I feel like multitudes. Peter, the, no. Well, okay. Peter Austin. Charlie is so pitch watching, perfect in the Burton movies. Too perfect. He's well. It's. Ostrom is like not a good, I just like saw this like blonde haired every American kid and just like immediately just ciphered onto him as a kid. Watching him now, his performance is very weird. He is very much a first time child actor 
and he, and he after this he goes on to be a vet, veterinarian, so he's not like an yeah. actor at heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really feels like they plucked a kid off the street in a couple of scenes. I, uh, you know, who really shines watching it as an adult? Uh, Denise Nickerson as Violet Beauregard. Uh-huh. She is so good. Yeah, uh, and obviously uh, it was Julie Don Cole as Veruca Salt. Uh, she describes how it was. Uh, the uh, the entire crew just in every one of her scenes just kept pushing her to be like nastier, angrier, meaner to the point where like in her song, she is like absolutely unhinged and it's fantastic. It's awesome. Another huge part of this like assemblage, though, is they got production designer Harper Goff, mm-hmm. who is uh, a legendary like production designer. He worked with Disney on so on 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas, Fantastic Voyage, and then built like tons of parts of Disneyland and Disney World, or at least designed it. He didn't like nail two by fours together. You know what I mean? And I feel like that is part of the reason why the movie has this like, it just immediately slotted into our collective unconscious because it feels like a Disney movie set with like some budget corners cut. Like you see the chocolate room now and like it's cle- it's just all duct tape and uh cellophane. But it's like there there is just a layer of whimsy and polish uh-huh. in those sets that really just make things uh just just pop and stick in your mind. And so of course I think if there's one fact you know about uh Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, by the way. Willy, it was they changed the name from Charlie Chocolate Factory to Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory. Of uh, going back to what Jake was talking about, that was because of them trying to sell Wonka bars via the Quaker mm-hmm. Oats company. That's the reasoning for why they couldn't have it be Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for this movie, which is a little confusing. Um, but yeah, uh, the the. The the big thing that the the big fun story is it was Gene Wilder that came up with the bit with the cane walk into the role uh, that he did to this like somersault that he does. He pitches it to the director and uh, Mel Stewart's like, why? Why would he do that? And he's like, because from that very moment on, you never know whether uh, Willy Wonka is lying or telling the truth. It just immediately sets you off guard on the character. And those reactions from the kids are genuine. He, uh, they, they did say they had, they had worked with Gene Wilder, I think, in rehearsals before. But I think that w- what they decided, they were like, "Oh, he must have gotten injured. Oh, he must be hurt." And um, he totally sold it. So when he does that role, like they actually, that's that. They did a little bit. They, they kind of Blair Witch the kids a little bit like that. Like they oh, yeah. would, they would not tell them about stuff and to get those kind of genuine moments from them uh, throughout the movie. Uh, the uh, they they were also not shown the chocolate room until that moment that they shot the entrance when they walk into that big and that really was such a big moment for me as a kid. I think too with how long the buildup is to get into the factory, you know, I you you just kind of don't expect it to be such a as wow as it is like. At least to a to a kid, it's like this amazing. Like I couldn't imagine being in a room where you could like eat everything in it, and it's all can- delicious candy, and that really like like lit me up as a kid. Um, of course, though, the chocolate was not real, according to Michael Ballner, uh, who played Augustus Gloop. He said he was just st- it was just stinking water lying around for more weeks. So and it was- okay, here's the thing. Here's um, this is very l- less reliable, but this is the trivia section of IMDb. Um, they cl- this the one consistent story is that 
there was a the chocolate river stank. Yeah. And uh according to uh according to IMDb's trivia section, it's because they actually added real cream yes. to try and get the uh river to be more uh luscious and less diarrhea watery that's all i could think to this day watching that movie and it literally went rancid during filming totally it's just nasty he said it was dark water i had to jump in that water which is just 15 centimeters deep there was a hole about three meters across and i had to hit the hole which was not so easy as the water was very dark so i was always afraid that i will hit my head on the ground of the river it was just seemed like very as as it seemed as dangerous as the actual like movie presents the whole situation not not very cool <laughs> the actress who played Veruca Salt remembers the explicit instructions that despite every impulse in her body telling her to raise her hands to protect herself as she plummets through the chute she mustn't because if she hits the sides it will break her arms <laughs> yeah it's kind of funny it like really was as dangerous for those kids as like it seemed <laughs> so got those real reactions the uh, Oompa Loompas consisted of nine men and one woman from all around the world, including Britain, Turkey, Germany, and France. Uh, some of them barely did, any of them spoke yeah, English, so they're, they're, and which it was made it very hard for them to mouth <laughs> the uh, lines to the song. You can tell if you look at the periphery during the Oompa Loompa songs. Some of those guys are just like. Appa dappa yeppity yeah, yeah. And they, uh, cool. Apparently, they love to get hammered together. And the one story of of them that I kept seeing over and over again was they uh, people used to leave their shoes out of their hotel rooms to get shine for the morning, like businessmen and stuff. And one night they w- went into their hotel and gathered all the shoes and tied all the laces together and threw them in the elevator, uh, which probably really caused. Quite a fucking stir in that uh, situation. I just love. I love that they they got they got uh, wasted. I like to think that uh, the same with you know Wizard of Oz. I like to think the partying was was legit. Um, also, Wilder's performance. Going back to it, it is an amazing oscillation of different emotional states to always keep the viewer and the cast guessing. Mel Stewart said. I had no idea what he was going to do with that line. He got more and more excited screaming that and when he screams at Charlie about how he couldn't win the chocolate. He was just overpowering. He came up with the most wonderful moments in the film portraying Wonka as half man, half saint. And that's what makes the movie so good. And yeah, he apparently rehearsed the whole ending moment with Charlie where he flips out at them. He rehearsed it like at a fourth energy so that when he screams at them at that point in the movie, they are actually like in shock, and uh, it's just it's just such a brilliant. He, I mean, this is the problem. I feel like honestly, it's very justified because it was uh, David Seltzer added a lot to the thing, and it made uh, Charlie's arc that like he gives the he he for the love of candy and decency, he gives the gobstopper back and does all this stuff. But like up until that point, like. When they're like, hey, where's our... Grandpa Joe sucks in this movie. He's like, you know, he gets up out of nowhere. He's like, I've been bedridden for 20 years. And like, then just gets up and starts dancing. And even as a child, I'm like, I'm no doctor. But I know that's not how that works. Yeah. Um, But like, he's like, what happened to the lifetime supply of chocolate? After he fucking like is immediately within seconds is like, Hey, Charlie, let's drink some of this fizzy lifting drink. Let's do it. Fucking do it, pussy. And like, and, and Charlie's like, yeah, Grandpa, yeah. And they still act shocked just because they survived. 
unlike the other kids. Like they knew the rules. They 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 lost. Good day, sirs. But still they act super entitled. But it's God, there's so much of that. This movie is so befuddling. Yeah. This movie is such a like uh, a a confounding mess mixed with all of these magical uh Gene Wilder moments. It's I can't even wrap my head around but, it. But but you know, it's so strong to me that when they were going to remake it, we're about to get into the Burton Depp movie. I was like, why would you ever remake this movie? This is such a iconic, such a cemented in time performance from Gene Wilder. And the moments, yes, not all the moments in the movie hit, but the ones that do, and especially after they get to the chocolate factory, pretty much everything in the fact, like it it really was magical as a kid in a way. And I really think at the end of the day, if Gene Wilder's performance wasn't as strong as it is, I think everything else outside of it, you could easily remake it, right? Mm -hmm. You could easily, I would be like, yeah, sure. If, you know, it wouldn't have been as big of a deal. But Gene Wilder is so fucking good in everything he does. And so much so in this movie that it's like, I was like, how dare you, sir? Like, how how could you? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When it came to them trying to redo it later on. And that's what's so crazy. I, I agree. It's such an imperfect mess of a film, but... It's um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be this like tight, nice machine, you know, of a movie, this perfect filmic thing to a like older person to be like one of the best children's movies of all time, which I would say that it probably is to my era. At least it's it's one of my favorite or if anything, I could say one of my favorite, you know, performances to kids would be Gene Wilder's take on Willy Wonka. So before we get to the 2005 movie, let me just deal with the Willy Wonka fallout, if I may. Sure. So the movie is distributed by Paramount Pictures. They they make it on budget for $3 million. And the movie comes out and there are no candy bars. According to the director, and I have not been able to find an actual, like, real cited source on what exactly happened, Quaker Oats fucked up the formula on the titular Wonka bars, and none of them survived transport. They would all melt because the chocolate formula didn't work, was not solid enough to, like, make it to retail, and they had to recall oh my God. the entire stock. The movie itself was an absolute flop, ranking in the low to mid-50s for the year in terms of box office return, barely made their money back, and with marketing and all the actual candy production that was involved, definitely the whole endeavor was a massive money loss. The Wonka candy brand, which produced uh, Oompas, which were like these uh, half-assed, kind of half M&M, half Reese piece thing, Mm. Uh, And a couple of other products were marketed, nobody bit, and the entire brand was sold to a company called Breaker Confections, which was then promptly acquired by a different company called Sunmark Corporation in 1975. Sunmark then turned themselves into Willy Wonka brand. Now, the Willy Wonka brand of candy, you might remember growing up because Sunmark And Breaker Confections made basically every uh, compressed powdery candy you can imagine. Sweet tarts, spree, runts, uh, pixie sticks, 
bottle caps, uh, liquor or whatever, you know, fun sticks. Uh, you know what I'm talking about with the big white stick you dip in the powder. I love fun sticks. I mean, you're speaking my language. I'm more of a chocolate guy now, mm. but growing up, it was all about sweet tarts and sprees, man. I loved that shit growing up. I fucking loved it. And was Gobstoppers too? Uh, they did introduce an everlasting Gobstopper in 1976, and that was pretty much the love only successful candy that was born originally from the Wonka... Um, the Wonka IP that actually like was a hit on store shelves, but most of the candies we associate with the Wonka brand have nothing to do with the movie and were pretty much already being made by the company that acquired the name, mm-hmm. which I always found weird that like all of these, none of the candies from the movie except the Gobstoppers were like sold by the Wonka candy brand. Uh-huh. Nestle then bought out uh, Sunmark or the Wonka brand as it was and started making the candy under the Nestle Candy Shop brand, completely removing the Wonka marketing. In 2005, they tried to bring back the Wonka stuff. They actually released a Wonka bar, a scrum diddly umptious. They made a real push to try and like... Uh, make, you know, synergy with the upcoming film. Uh, You might remember those ads like, Wonka, what will they think of next? Uh, Uh With like the cartoon Gene Wilder and the cartoon Oompa Loompas. But none of those candies really sold well. The Wonka Golden Goose Eggs, the Wonka Sprinkled Donuts, nothing really clicked. Nothing that they sold matched the magic of what children believed these candies could be. And now the brand was bought by the Ferrero Group, that still produces, you know, nerds and nerds ropes and runts and all these candies, but have completely erased any of the Wonka branding. Uh, the Ferrero Group is an American-produced company. You or no, I'm sorry, the Ferrara Group. This has been fucking infuriating, by the way. On on Wikipedia, half of these articles get them confused. The Ferrara, the Ferrero Group makes Ferrero Rocher like. And Nutella, it's an Italian company. Ferrara makes Red Hots, Atomic Fireballs, and Boston Baked Beans. It's the American company, Ferrara, that now owns the brand. The only candy that survived, and I bought some today, that they made with the Wonka brand is called Magic Hat Gummies. I bought them at Target. They're just generic gummies with a liquid center that turns your tongue blue, and they're fucking mediocre. The Wonka movie has existed because in the 80s, Disney had their shit on lockdown. Very few movies made it to VHS, and if they did, it was for a limited time. They only uh, broadcast their movies during the wide world of Disney or on their own networks and channels, and there was a dearth of children's movies, especially fun, colorful musical movies that like were even remotely affordable to watch. And it is just by raw economic necessity that copies of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory flooded store shelves and was rerun on cable and network TV constantly during any moment they thought they could run child-friendly commercials. It is through the fact that it was a cheap flop that it became a beloved mainstay in our 80s childhood. So the entirety of this beloved thing up until a specific point was just a massive disaster that only has survived because it wasn't, it it was just cheaper to get a hold of than a Disney movie. 
Yeah. It's like the Garfield of children's movies. It's yeah. like, well, I want a recognizable thing, but I can't afford the people that actually own the real stuff. I'll just get this instead. And it was on TV all the time. Uh, I just remember it too being that movie that would be put on so, at so many like summer camps. And mm-hmm. it was like Pee Wee's Big Adventure that, you know, that was like just such a go-to for, you know, school and whatever. It was just there a lot. And it really was the power of that. So many movies. And I think this is so different now with streaming and everything. It's completely going to, the the version of us talking about our, the childhood movies they love and in, in episodes like this and way in the future, if, if unless hopefully podcasts are completely eradicated by the year 2035. But if not, uh, then, you know, they'll be, they'll be having very different conversations. But for us, a lot of the movies that we fell in love with were simply because of this rights kind of stuff and syndication stuff and the fact that, like, we only had five channels and holy shit, I love, yay, this movie's great. It's on again. And this is what I'm going to do on my Sunday afternoon now because, you know, I don't have a lot of options. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I'm not going to go out and make friends. That's for sure, Jake. I'm not going to go out in the world and like learn how to ride a bike and like fucking talk to people. So I better just sit back and <laughs> shove this stupid chocolate movie into my throat and <laughs> ignore the fact that I really should probably make at least one friend in the neighborhood I live in. Just one, dude. Would have been cool. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, my brother was just very good at sports and kind of the golden child. And they called me the slimy, slimy Slugworth. Boy. They called you little Slugworth. Slugworth. I yeah, remember. they called me Slugworth, <laughs> uh, which is interesting because that's what now what I call my lovemaking sessions. Uh, <laughs> so that's very weird. Very. And I will Freudian. tell you, my gobstopper is not everlasting. Dear Lord, <laughs> no, I wish it was. It's lasting. It lasts. <laughs> For a very short while. Uh, Neverlasting. It's a neverlasting gobstopper. And the other part of the whole disaster is Roald Dahl hates the movie, doesn't like it, uh, disassociates from it. And uh, so that's also what puts the movie, what essentially removes the movie from getting a sequel or having any further development well into the 2000s. Um, the, The property languished in limbo all the way to the to the early 2000s, Warner Brothers ends up striking a deal with the Dahl estate. Uh, Ron Dahl passed away in 1990, by the way. Uh, this got Dahl's widow uh, Felicity and his daughter Lucy total artistic control and final privilege when it came to choosing the actors, directors, and writers. And then the project enters development hell. And uh, so at points, you know, I, I could it would take way too long to get into who who wasn't actually a part of the movie eventually. But some surprising names. Uh, Martin Scorsese uh, was involved. Also, uh, there was a Jim. Thankfully, because I don't think it would have gone well. The Jim Carrey uh, helmed Wonka, Willy Wonka and the, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was was uh, thrown around. I think, though, what would have put us on the correct timeline. And I think we wouldn't have. COVID, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have uh, men storming a building, we wouldn't have any of that stuff uh, if we had gotten Nicolas Cage oh. as Willy Wonka. I am so, every, man, sometimes I'll see him associate, like, be like, oh, he was gonna maybe play this role, and I'll be like, eh, but I see it for Willy Wonka. I think he would have been an incredible performance, because the thing that Johnny Depp, as we kind of get into my issues with the film. I feel like Johnny Depp actually isn't like Johnny Depp enough. I feel like he should have been way wilder if you look Gene Wilder. <laughs> Smoke if you look with me, you'll be free. 
In a world of shamanic incantation. If Nicolas Cage had done it, he probably would have been wild. Yeah. And I think it needs a wildness. Like, I was, because I was like, wait a second. The only man wilder than wilder. What was the initial book like? You know, like, what was tr- what was the Wonka in the book? And so I went back and read scenes. Literally, every line ends with an exclamation point. All the actors, all the, or all the actors, all the other characters in the book are like, he's mad, he's insane, he's lost his marbles, and he's constantly like, we gotta do, you know, you know, the, the moms like with Augustus Gloop, they're just like, like, oh my god, he's gonna, he's gonna die, he's gonna be turned into candy. He's like, no, no, that would never happen. I would never let that happen because the uh, Augustus Gloop chalk candy would be disgusting. No one would want to eat it. It wouldn't be marketable at all. And and you know, he just has these like why he's just wild and always saying the thing you would least expect. And it, and every sentence literally ends in an explanation point. It, he's clearly like screaming through the whole movie, and that's not necessarily like the best acting just screaming through the whole movie. But I do think that Nicolas Cage, and I kind of feel like Johnny Depp could have done this. I'd not really, I just think Johnny Depp's inspiration. I literally remember, I remember Johnny Depp being like, Augustus Candy wouldn't taste very good. Yes. Like he just kind of does that thing the whole movie. It's, he does this very like low played down thing the whole time. And I think it's kind of based on his influences, which I just think he sought out the wrong influences, but let's get, let's get there. I'll, I'll, I want to get some stuff out of the way first, before we get more into the Johnny Depp part of things. Tim Burton is actually the first director. The doll estate is happy with namely due to his dislike for the seventies movie as well. <laughs> he did not like that. It strayed from the original source material. He, he had the same, uh, grievances that the, uh, that the Doll Estate did, and Burton was a huge Ronald Dahl fan growing up. He had, you know, this very similar mixture of whimsy and darkness in uh, Burton's own work uh, later on. You know, I mean, it's 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 right there. So Burton gets Big Fish writer John August to whip up a screenplay at the end of 2003. The two of them avidly were like, like, because I think even John August was like, oh, should I watch that the original movie? He was like, don't fucking look at it. Stay like we're staying away from it. We don't want anything to do with it. And so very, very purposely ignored the first movie, threw themselves into the book. And wanted to bring more moments from the book into it, which we definitely get. It's funny, though, that he was mad at straight from the source material because of the ending we get and all the backstory stuff with Willy Wonka, which we'll talk about. But regardless, they get this script done. And, of course, Burton's number one choice, shocker, is Johnny Depp the whole time. Uh, Will, side note, though, I will say this. Michael Jackson tried really fucking hard to be Willy Wonka in this movie. He tried really, really hard to get the job. To the point where he even secretly recorded a full soundtrack for the film. What? And this is something that uh, Burton and team absolutely loved. They loved it. They heard it, and they were like, this is incredible. And they tried to, like, trick him into letting them use it. They were like, we'll let you be, like, a smaller part in the movie will let you do you know please and Jackson said fuck that (laughs) and he pulled out and he hid the songs away probably in that secret room where he used to be with boys mm-hmm. um allegedly but uh regardless uh they they the the music's never seen the light of day and um uh you know and also and though many think that this was the case Johnny Depp denies fervently that Michael Jackson had any influence on his character that was actually something he said was completely never a thought in his head was Michael Jackson no it's i the pale skin just the general like 
cheekboniness of Johnny Depp, I think, uh-huh. was part of it. The Well, like, and the the kind of like boyish. Yeah, but literally a, vocal a boyish stunted recluse. Yeah. That is struggling to maintain a facade in front of a public that he is, uh, if not disgusted by, wary of is just a part of Michael Jackson's public mannerisms. Yeah. And so I really was like trying as you know, cause I also watched the movie for the first time this week and was like, Oh boy, here comes Michael Jackson Wonka. And I was like, Oh, that's not what this is. Yeah. It was actually children's TV hosts from his childhood. Captain Kangaroo, Fred Rogers, Depp said, I distinctly remember even at that age, their speech pattern and their kind of musical quality and the way they're speaking to the camera and to the children. Uh, and, and, and I just feel like it's too calm. Fred Rogers is not the right in, inspo for Willy Wonka. I think it kind of, I think it kind of was fucked from the gate with that. And then the look is baffling to me as well. That hair, apparently based on Anna Wintour uh, from Vanity Fair magazine. You know, Devil Wears Prada. You know, like so. This is uh, again another. I saw this is something I saw in a YouTube video. I could not find the original source, but I did see some. Uh, I don't even know if it was fan art, but. Supposedly they did because this was the book accurate version of the of the of the adaptation. Uh, they did try and make him up as Willy Wonka as described in the book. And the mixture of like wild hair and wiry long beard made him look so much like Jack Sparrow that they just like were like, no, we can't. We literally we just it can't happen like this. It's too similar people. I know, but yeah, I just hate his look with that hair and everything. He said, um, the hair I imagine as a kind of Prince Valiant do. High bangs and a bob, extreme and very unflattering, but something that Wonka probably thinks is cool because he's been locked away for such a long time and doesn't know any better. Like the outdated slang he uses. Mm. And so yeah, let's let's talk about it a little bit. So I just feel that his 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 performance like really irked me, like annoyed me. You know, he mm-hmm. just the, his little giggles that he made, his little his his. I want to like I want to look at Wonka and be like in awe of Wonka. I feel like he kind of went in this way of like he's like Edward Scissorhands. He's like been trapped away in this big building and so he's like out of touch and shy and like weird you know I mean even talk about that opening I mean you can't not compare it to Gene Wilder's opening it's such an underwhelming introduction Tim it was almost like they purposely made it as underwhelming as possible because they're all observing this kind of cool animatronic thing in front of them and then it just cuts back to them and he's just standing there and he's like it's pretty cool don't you think and they're just like ugh you know what I mean he should be like, I, I I feel like he should have been shot out of a fucking cannon. Like Johnny Depp paid for Hunter S. Thompson to be shot out of a cannon after he died. It should have been like, I feel like uh, I want to. That was a uh, poorly engineered giant rocket in the shape of a fist. That's I'll right. That's that. right. I forgot. I just feel like from the moment he's on screen, I'm just, uh, I'm just mad out. I'm the, it's the midiest of mid performances. And I feel like he wanted to do something maybe more subtle and I get that, but this is just the wrong character to, to take that risk on. I I think it's, it's, there's a couple of moments where it pays off where like his sense of timing and the understated thing kind of works. I remember seeing a bunch of gifts on Tumblr that like have survived where it's just like him shutting down the children. Uh-huh. The when he's like doing the therapist thing, he's like, "Oh my god, you're good!" Like, yeah, yeah. There's a and, few and, nice moments, and there's better comedy in this movie than the 1971 movie. 
I think like I like the music and stuff more, but I think there's well, um, I mean, you know, you got fucking Oingo Boingo on the case. You're you're, not, you're gonna yeah, you're gonna have a better soundtrack in some cases. No, I mean, I would say I like the songs from the hey, come on, Pure Imagination stuff like that. I think the music is is interesting. I really do think kind of like it's kind of inverse from this 1970. I don't think the 1971 movie would be nearly talked about or beloved or as good as it is without Gene Wilder. And I think that the Burton film is it would be actually a lot stronger if there was um just a better performance out of Depp or a different actor that could pull it off. Like Nick Cage, man. I mean, if he we, went full God, Vampire's Kiss God, on that yes. fucking character, dude. Yes, yes. If he second half of Vampire's Kiss that movie, it would have been so banger. Like, that's what I want to see. I want to see something. It doesn't have to be Gene Wilder's performance where, where he's kind of like, oh my God, is he is he nice or is he mean? Is he? It doesn't have to be that. I think that's where Nick Cage would work so well. I, I could genuinely believe he was like this crazy chocolate factory owner if it was Nick Cage making the kinds of choices Nick Cage makes in a movie, in a role like that, you know? And fucking Depp does make Wild choices too. I just feel like he was so it was wrong, bad time. I mean, the first time he ulalates to summon uh the the yeah. Oompa Loompa squad, as played by Deep Roy. Uh-huh. Uh which I think uh, I liked that. I think I liked actually the Oompa Loompa stuff, kind of, I think. Uh, the OG Oompa Loompas are so just like the fact that you can tell they're like barely remembering the, 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 the self-serious. I, I mean, they both have the self-seriousness. Yeah. I I yeah, I don't really have as big of an issue. It is a visual feast. I think there's things about it that are good, but I think it lives and dies with the with the portrayal of Wonka. You know, I also do think the ending is a is a little weird. It's a weird ending. Oh yeah, no. Well, they introduced the whole subplot with uh, Christopher Lee playing Wonka's dad, uh, who is an overbearing dentist, and they. At, and so they reach the end of the movie and he's like, Charlie, the chocolate factory, it's yours. And uh, the Charlie Bucket, I forget the actor's name. He grew up to be the good surgeon, which I the good doctor, uh -huh. which is weird. Uh, I am a surgeon. Um, he's like, no. And so then he goes and forgives his father and then just goes back to just living with the buckets anyway, <laughs> which is a weird choice. I, I don't know. There's like there's a lot, uh, you know, it, the fact that it focuses more on Wonka's arc, as it were, because like Charlie is always just like the the final girl in a horror movie. Yeah. He just like didn't sin and therefore is spared uh, is kind of what he's always been. He's just a good boy. It's, it makes the fact that he wants to, like, work with a child a little uh, more believable in uh -huh. this version that like. Uh, that Johnny Depp is like looking for a family after like being away from his family for so long. It definitely, I mean, God, watching uh, the 71 movie as an adult and at the end when uh, <laughs> I looked it up, Gene Wilder is my age when he filmed that. Wow. He's my age when he filmed that. And his final speech to Charlie is like, Look at me, Charlie. I got one foot in the fucking grave. It's over for me. I'm fucking done. I'm dead. I need dead, a boy yeah. to carry on my legacy. I gotta give up. Yeah. I'm a fucking dead man walking. You think I can do this forever? I reached Look, my I'm a... ten, 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like literally. <laughs> That's his like justification just... for handing the factory off to a boy. <laughs> and I'm just like sitting there being like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> just That's... looking at my hands, just being like, so my God.
Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, Grandpa George is less of a shithead. There's, like, less about his tobacco habits and his, uh, gambling. It's all, I just think, uh, even updating, uh, Mike TV from just a cowboy obsessive to a, a uh, irate gamer who says the R word. Yeah, I, that was interesting to me because I'm like, I almost want to show that to the younger generation and be like, no, 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 it was literally okay to say this word fucking you know 10 years ago or whatever it was you know what i mean it's like it's actually almost 20 almost 20 almost tw- almost 20 years but still it was pretty recent that it was fucking completely passable in a big blockbuster for kids like that that's how that's how normalized it was then so just so you know it was kind of a kind of overnight for a lot of us that that was that word's no longer okay 20 years ago 20 years i ago. mean still in a huge blockbuster in a massive it's crazy yes. well that was like when i watched monster squad and the bully in the first 10 minutes said the f's gay f slur <laughs> <laughs> i was like whoa but anyways it's just wild what what uh what is acceptable uh and and how that changes but what is acceptable in 2023 well it might just be this wonka movie in 2016, uh, Warner Bros. reacquires the rights to the book in order to create a prequel to the events covered within it. They produced that shitty Tom and Jerry thing to hold on to the rights because they had let it lapse for a little bit. That and that is why that direct-to-video movie has Tom and Jerry uh, just in the background of the exact events of the 1971 movie. It's very weird. So, yeah. So, so Paul King is attached to direct he first gained popularity via the sketch comedy show The Mighty Boosh. Mm. Uh, he was uh, directed on that. And then with the Paddington children's films, we already gushed about those. I mean, the second is lauded as a masterpiece by, by a large group of people. It's kind of shocking how good it is. Uh, and so, yeah, that 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 got, immediately got me hyped. Timothy Chalamet does seem like an odd choice uh, to play the titular role, uh, but there, you know, and there are several musical numbers. Uh, Paul King... He wanted to uh, make a, a more uh, a whimsical, he wanted to take a more whimsical look at the character. He said, I didn't want to make a character who was incredibly damaged, evil, or nefarious because I don't think that's what Willy Wonka is. He's got a bit of an edge, but sending out these five golden tickets and hoping to find an heir from among five children, someone who could run the chocolate factory and is quite optimistic. And Chalamet was actually the only person he had in mind for the gig. He said, trying to find a Wonka was very very difficult, and it was a very short list of one person who I thought could play the role. We are very lucky to get Timothee Chalamet. A film called Wonka lives or dies by how good its Wonka is. Timothee is funny, charming, manic, strange, and unknowable, and all those things you expect Willy Wonka to be, but he has also got this strong emotional core to his performance, and that guides you through it. And I'm, I, you know, I, again, I, I, it's definitely not the person I would most have in mind to play this role, but also I have actually never been yet let down by a Chalamet performance. And, you know, he's had some big shoes to fill, obviously, with Paul Atreides and Dune. So I'm, I'm here for it. And I'm definitely here for the musical numbers. Mm-hmm. I also love the choice for Hugh Grant for the Oompa Loompa is definitely a great choice uh, because he's an asshole. <laughs> uh, Paul King said, as I was reading these songs and wondering what sort of voice would fit it, Hugh 
Hugh's voice popped in my head. He's so good at this kind of disdainful, scornful voice. It suddenly felt like that he would be a, a lovely double act between him and Willie, especially because Willie, at this stage of the story, is still finding his way. This very self-important 18-inch Oompa Loompa and the slightly scatterbrained genius Willie hopefully complete each other. Hugh Grant has already talked about uh, his work on the film. Yeah, I look forward. I look forward to seeing Hugh Grant and seeing the Oompa Loompa and being like, yeah, that guy deserves to be enslaved. Yes. Yeah, Hugh Grant already has spoken of his work on the film as follows. He said, I couldn't have hated anything more. (laughs) He uh, really didn't like the rig that he was put in to perform, and he was very confused as to how much his bodily movements would be a part of the acting or if it was just his face. And he was like, they never gave me a clear answer. <laughs> so I'm very, very excited for for him in the role. I think it's going to be great. Set to release on the 15th of December, 2023. And, uh, you know, I think in this case, hopefully it's the director at the end of the day, unlike the previous two movies where it really hinged on the main actor. I think Paul King's work is, is really mm-hmm. on another level. And he's especially good, obviously, at adapting children's works, you know? And so obviously this is not a adaptation. This is a prequel, but it's all there. Oh, also I should, I should mention, cause I wasn't completely sure on this. Uh, it is actually a prequel to the 1971 movie specifically. Interesting. Yes, it is. It is not a prequel to the book or to the Burton film. It is specifically the 1971 movie, which, which makes sense. The Oompa Loompa looks Hugh Grant, Looks like the Oompa Loompa. He's going to come across like a little 12-year-old with like a Nazi dueling scar. And he was just like, someday you're going to pretend to be Slugworth, but I forget your real name. Yeah, well, I bet. I bet there might be a Slugworth in there. Yeah, so. Uh, no, the guy wasn't Slugworth. Remember, Holden? That was the whole point. Right, right, right. He wasn't Slugworth. <laughs> it was some other guy. You're right. It was just some other guy. But yeah, I, I, I want to sing again, Jake. I want to feel the, the the joy of song in my heart. All right, I've become old and embittered. I'm, I'm over the hill. Don't you see? I peaked 10 years ago. I mean, I, I can't. Who I'm, can take a topic, <laughs> break down all the facts, <laughs> talk about which actresses have really sexy racks, the Whizbrew Man. Whoa, wow, the Whizbrew Man can. <laughs> we'll talk about some anime. It's pretty confusing. <laughs> I am even having trouble understanding what they're doing. <laughs> the Whizbrew Man can. The Whizbrew Man can. Yo, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as much as I enjoyed just like connecting the dots on these adaptations and everything. Mm. I think that was the most fun for me was just analyzing. Adaptation is very fascinating to me, analyzing the shit out of it, especially when you have multiple movies to compare. It's always like a good time in my brain on that. So thanks so much for being a part of this. If you'd like to support us further, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew, we've got. Is that where they can get ad-free episodes? Yep, ad-free episodes, episodes uninterrupted by any ads. Weekly bonus episodes for just five dollars a month, and at fifteen dollars a month, you can join us on our Sunday study session on Discord. We watched the uh, Tim Burton uh, Children Chocolate Factory, and it was a fucking great time uh, screaming at it with a group of people. (laughs) So check us out over there. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. Check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Uh, I'm streaming all week long. 
Check me out on there. Twitch.tv forward slash hold it So the only day I don't stream is Wednesday. Uh, or actually, no, the only stream day I don't stream is Thursday. But on Wednesday, I stream twice. I stream once in the morning with my wife on my channel. And later that night, I go to the studio, the LPN studio, and I stream with Jake uh, over on twitch.tv forward slash LPN TV. Jake and I do Tears of a Clown, dude. It's heating up, man. It's just been so much fun doing that show with you. It's A-Dog. been a fucking party yeah. every time it's right great. now. Uh, if you are not following twitch.tv slash LPN TV, what are you even doing? Get over there. And uh, oh, also uh, go to twitch.tv slash Puppet Jared for my Thursday night streams, The Cartoon Dumpster, where we watch weird old cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. There you go. Check out Puppet Jared. I don't know what to say. It's awesome. It's so good. Yeah. Every th- hey, the one day I don't stream, too. Perfect. Works out. Uh, <laughs> twitch.tv forward slash Puppet Jared. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on killing children in horrifying ways for the most minor of sins. They literally say in the song, who's to blame? The mother and the father. <laughs> then I guess you shouldn't have shoved a girl into an incinerator. Because what the fuck is even the... <laughs> she just chewed gum. Delightfully it's, evil. It's a, it's a fine... It's a very... It's a healthy habit for, for teeth. It's, it's not that thrillingly bad. Thrillingly horrific. All right, y'all. Take care. <laughs> this show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.